0: remind you that we flip things around last week and we are this week i've been preaching through hebrews in the evening and first timothy in the morning just for last week and this week we're kind of flipping those things around and so hebrews chapter 13 beginning in verse 9 we'll actually begin reading in verse 8 and read down a bit children here are your questions for this morning First, what are the two big sections of the Bible called? Two, is is it important for Christians to know as much as they can about both? Three, were the Old Testament sacrifices able to save people from their sins? And four, who gave himself as the only sacrifice that could take away sins? Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. This is the word of God. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There ends a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you for all the richness of it from Genesis to Revelation. The evidence, the record, the history of redemption. We focus on that word redemption through the blood of our Lord Jesus, written all over this passage. Lord, now as we explore these truths, we pray that you would open our eyes and give us more clarity. And in seeing more clearly and hearing with hearing ears and receptive hearts, we pray that what we hear this morning, see and receive would be that which transforms our hearts. We pray for the minister of your Holy Spirit to please help the preacher and to preach all of us who will hear. And Lord, we pray that you would Help us to put aside all the distractions that would keep us from hearing from you this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the thought of Jesus being likened to an animal, especially an animal that was slaughtered and burnt, should rattle our being. Old Testament animal sacrifices reminded us that the wages of sin is death. And the shedding of the blood and the destruction of the body of those animals was the way that our forgiveness of sins was represented to our forefathers and foremothers in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And as people read those things, as we read those things, as those people witnessed those things, there was something very disturbing about it, and there should be. Especially for animal lovers, I would suppose that as they saw the animals slaughtered, as they saw them distra- d- destroyed, there, there was something that reeked of death. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ being likened, at least symbolically, to such animals that were sacrificed. I think of our Savior, Jesus Christ, shedding blood and having his body given for us should shake us in a good way recognizing that we wouldn't have any forgiveness of our sins were it not for jesus christ shedding his blood and so so with all the spiritual implications of jesus giving his life we can't help but focus on his sacrifice provided for us life now and life forever Theological truths attached to what's been written here, conveyed, is the profound transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so it's a profound pivot, not only in history, but even in the history of God's redemption of His people. There are things in here that are deep and profound theological truths, but it all has to do with God's plan to forgive sinners like us. And it comes through that same Jesus that we read about in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That gives us great assurance and great confidence to know that the same Jesus that sacrificed himself for us is the same Jesus that now reigns in heaven and that we will worship forever and ever. The very same Jesus. That's a comfort of God's people great comfort, and great assurance. What takes place in what's described here also has very personal implications for anyone and everyone who testifies to the fact that they belong to Jesus. Before we get further into the passage, it's easy to recognize that some Old Testament knowledge is necessary to understand this passage. I said to a friend the other day, In reference to this passage, if you read this without any Old Testament knowledge, it simply makes no sense whatsoever. What's this about food and sacrifices and the camp and priests, etc.? It simply doesn't make any sense, so we need to have some Old Testament background. We can still get the sense of Jesus giving himself for sinners, but we won't really understand what's going on here. And so I simply encourage us, as we will do here, is to look at the Old Testament and to see what's going on in there. Don't just be New Testament Christians. The more we study the Old Testament, the more clearly we'll see that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The more we study the New Testament, the more we'll recognize that so much of our understanding is based on what went before the coming of Jesus. But first, let's consider Jesus Christ as the source of our stability our life stability, but also our spiritual stability and our eternal stability. This living Jesus is, again, the one who was dead, who's now alive, and it gives sure confidence to all those who belong to Christ. Think about what Jesus has done for us. He's redeemed us from our sins. He's reconciled us to God. He's had victory over death, Even right now, he sympathetically intercedes on our behalf as our high priest. He's the same Jesus who's King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever, that we'll worship forever and ever. And so that's the source of our stability. That's been reinforced by the writer of Hebrews numerous times already in the letter, and here we are at the last chapter, but what he has to address here is the fact that some have lost sight of that. Some professing Christians are not satisfied, are not satisfied with the completed work of Jesus. They've lost sight of the beautiful Savior and the beautiful work that he's done for the sake of sinners. And they've lost sight of the fact that anyone who's received any of that receives it by the unmerited grace of God. And so these folks who are going in a different direction have lost sight of Jesus, and they've lost sight of salvation by grace alone through faith. They've lost sight of sola gratia. Because other things are starting to creep in and they're starting to distract from the person of Jesus and his finished work and distracting from the grace of God to sinners. And in contrast to trusting in the solid rock of Jesus Christ, the unchanging Jesus Christ of the Gospels, they're trusting in strange and diverse teachings, alien truths to scripture, alien truths alien things to scripture and alien things to the gospel that's the word he uses these things are alien and these people are starting to embrace them they've forgotten or they're not trusting in the grace that saves and the grace that keeps probably the most famous christian hymn is amazing grace heathens will sing amazing grace but for christians we understand just how profound that simple hymn by john newton is and it begins doesn't it with amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me right how sweet the sound when we first heard of grace when we first heard of salvation in christ that that saving grace it was so profound but if you follow the hymn to the end It's not just as if grace was this one-time thing that saved our souls, but grace is something that's necessary and provided by God throughout our lives. So through many dangers, trials, and snares, it's grace, the grace of God. It's not just some nebulous thing. The grace of God brings us through. The grace of God brings us through our lives. And then, then, comes death, and then comes eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And it's all a reflection on amazing grace. That's what these folks have lost sight of. They've forgotten and they've rejected the benefits that come to sinners through the free gift of God, through Jesus Christ. And they're starting to fall back on some things. For, for the Jewish believers, they were falling back on these kosher laws. There may have even been new introduced things about food. That's what kosher laws are about. It's about food. Maybe some new things introduced. If you eat this and you don't eat that, then you'll be more sanctified. You'll be more right with God. The writer of Hebrews says that that's not going to do it for you. That's not going to satisfy your soul, these rituals, these things that you've added to the gospel, they're going to do you no good. Or these things that you're falling back on, they're not going to do you any good. They might temporarily soothe your conscience. They might, they might tickle your taste buds, but they'll do nothing for your soul. These traditions, these rituals, some that were sanctioned in the Old Testament, others that you've added will amount to nothing. Grace is what you need. Those who want to rely on those things don't really have a right to eat of the things of grace because they're relying on something other than Jesus. They're relying on something other than the gospel. They're relying on something other than grace. Anything that distracts, detracts, or diminishes grace alone is a problem a very serious problem. And there are many dangers involved in that. The first thing is if somebody follows those things consistently and thinks that their salvation is based on ritual and tradition and all those things, then they're on the wrong track and they don't know the truth of salvation. But sometimes believers can actually get caught up in this kind of stuff and need to throw it off. Because I will tell you, if you're relying on on rituals and things outside of scripture to kind of boost your faith, to boost your soul, you're going to start robbing yourself of your assurance because our assurance is based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ and his commitment to us now and forever. And people who fall back on these things will actually rob themselves of the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus. So there are many things, many problems with relying on those kinds of things can't explain the whole context here but apostle paul in 1 corinthians 8 says food will not commend us to god we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do again those things might satisfy taste buds satisfy ritual satisfy superstition tradition that's one thing but to have a satisfied soul To be satisfied with being reconciled with God, to having a relationship with him, that can only come through the finished work of Jesus and his grace applied to our souls. And so we're reminded here that that we need to continually feed on what we call the means of grace, the word and prayer and worship and the sacraments. They're means of grace to feed us, to build up our faith. The author goes on to say that this sacrifice that Jesus made was to sanctify his people. And so we come back to Jesus as that willing sacrifice, the one who gave himself up. And the author says that Jesus was sacrificed as it were outside of the camp. Outside the gate. Where does that whole idea come from? Jump back, if you will, to Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 4. We could look at Leviticus 16 and the whole, the whole plan of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, but this kind of summarizes things here with the sin offering and the idea of the sacrifice being burnt outside of the camp. That's the background of what the author's talking about. Leviticus 4, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, if any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed, a bull from the herd without blemish, to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull and of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver that shall, he shall remove with kidneys." Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. And then he goes on. Burn them outside of the tent. The tent being the tabernacle. Then that turns later into the temple. And in the day of Jesus, it was the temple that was the place of sacrifice. But consider this, that all those things that are spoken about, these animal sacrifices here and all throughout the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, all pointed to Jesus. So the author is saying here that Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice. The people of the Old Testament were to put their faith in God through those sacrifices, looking to Jesus, but Jesus is the fulfillment. And the author is saying, like those burnt offerings, Jesus was taken outside. Now jump ahead to the Gospels. First of all, Matthew, chapter 27. You see, Jesus is tried, and he's condemned, and he's bloodied, and in Matthew, chapter 27, pick up in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away. To crucify him now jump ahead to John chapter 19 beginning in verse 16 so he delivered him over to them to be crucified so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them will just end there. So Jesus is tried within the bounds of Jerusalem. In fact, he's tried in the Praetorium, which was Pilate's quarters, Pilate's place in Jerusalem, Governor Pilate, and he's condemned there and They take him through the city, out through the judgment gate outside the city to the place of the skull or Golgotha, and that's where Jesus Christ is crucified. Outside the camp, outside the city. That's where the altar is, you might say, of the ultimate sacrifice. It's there that Jesus became sin, representing all of our sin upon himself outside the camp. Outside the camp, outside the city, outside the temple, out there on unholy ground. Jesus puts himself in the place of sinners. He identifies with sinners. Sinners. And he makes that sacrifice willingly for our sakes. That's where sinners are sanctified. Finally, those sacrifices are fulfilled. And it's a radical shift. And that's one of the things the writer of Hebrews is getting across. All those old things of the old covenant, sanctified, sanctioned as they were, are now obsolete. No more sacrifices. No more central place of the temple. No more central to the world and religion is Jerusalem. Now, now the world is called to come and see the cross. And behold the cross of Christ outside the camp. So symbolically displayed when Jesus Christ died on the cross when the curtain is torn. Making the way for sinners to come into the presence of God symbolizing that. And then how profound is it in just a few years from the time of this writing, the temple itself is absolutely destroyed and the whole sacrificial system is gone. And the whole focus is on Jesus. It's on Jesus. And so anything that would go back into that old system is wrong. And anything that would add to that System in the system of true and spiritual religion is wrong because it distracts from the work of Jesus Christ and distracts from the work of the Holy Spirit. It distracts from unmerited grace. And God establishes now for all who come to Christ a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And so people of every nation coming to Christ outside the camp. The question is, have, have we all, have we all come to Christ outside the camp? What a visual to come outside the camp. And I'm not big into visualizing these things, but standing under the cross and unashamedly saying, this Jesus who was crucified is my savior. Standing under the cross saying, this Jesus who died is my savior, but he's not there anymore. He reigns and rules in heaven now, and I am unashamed to associate myself, to align myself with the fact that a miserable wretch like me needed to come to the cross because I couldn't atone for my own sins. I needed Jesus To actually sacrifice himself for my sake so that I could be saved from my sins. And he, for me, paid for my sins and actually died and then conquered death, rose up from the dead and rose to the right hand of glory. To come out of the camp, the camp of old religion, the camp of the world, and stand under the cross of a Christ who doesn't hang on the cross anymore, but who's glorified. He's associated with the Savior. We're so thankful, and we ought to be, for the benefits of salvation, forgiveness, new life, reconciliation, life now and life forever. We have eaten of the bread of life. Jesus says he is the bread of life. We have a right by grace. That's the only way any of us have a right by grace to eat of the living bread Jesus but have we counted the cost of being associated with the cross and a crucified Christ we might like to skip over what the author of Hebrew says he says now let us go outside of the camp and bear reproach. Bear reproach. We sing the old hymn. We sang the old hymn. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I feign to take my stand. Honestly, I'll confess, I've sung that for years, and I wasn't quite sure what feign meant. Feign, for those of us who don't know, children, feign means I'm happy to do so. I take joy in standing beneath the cross of Jesus. And of course we do, because again, we know that that's where our salvation was won. That's where I take my stand and I count my blessings over and over again. But have we counted the cost of that to endure reproach? You see, the Hebrew church was facing real issues with this. They were facing real persecution all the time. They were facing pressures both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. What was at stake for the Hebrew Christians? There were a lot of things at stake. Some of the things would have been confusing to them because they were raised understanding that the, the, the sanctioned way of worship was the Old Testament way, and now they had to understand that that was all done, and now Jesus Christ is the center. They had to understand that, you might say, biblically and theologically. But think of the other things. They had to deal with throwing away traditions. They had to deal with being thrown out of the synagogue, which was their cultural connection with their people. They had to deal with families that would reject them. People in the church throughout history have had to deal with very similar things. What does it look like for Christians around the world? Take your stand under the cross of Jesus and your government might come after you. Take your stand under Jesus and your former religious peers, if you were, say, a Muslim or another religion, might try to put you to death. What it looks like for some of our brothers and sisters around the world, losing jobs, losing everything they own. What does it look like to come outside the camp? You want to see what being outside the camp looks like for some, at least for one. Do you remember Stephen? Stephen was preaching. A phenomenal Old Testament sermon to a bunch of Jewish leaders, unafraid. And they were threatening his life. And here's what they did. Notice the wording, Acts 7.58, they cast him out of the city. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. never forget in light of that that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and so he could confidently face death even death by stoning outside the camp but what does it look like for the likes of Covenant Church we sing beneath the cross of Jesus I feign to take my stand. I delight to take my stand. I'm happy to take my stand beneath the cross of Jesus. I think even more profoundly beneath the reigning in Christ works. What does that look like? For some, our religion is folly. That's what Paul says the Greeks see our religion as. It's folly, it's foolish, we're ignorant and stupid. For the Jewish people, they see it as an offense that the one who claimed to be the Messiah of God's people was a mere, because they saw it that way, a mere man who was defeated and died on the cross. We associate ourselves with Jesus, we're seen as sometimes foolish and offensive so do we really feign to take our stand beneath the cross of Jesus I think we're told these things by the author of Hebrews so that they wouldn't and we wouldn't look for an easier way out but to trust in the Lord and the work that he's done and associating ourselves clearly with Christ separating our ways from the world may mean that we become outcasts someone said you have to be all in I don't know how we're all challenged in this particular area by the people in our lives by our work situations or whatever but I can tell you who I firmly believe has the greatest challenge in this very area, and it's our teenagers and our young people going to college. If they're willing and ready to stand beneath the cross of Jesus, to kneel, to fall beneath the cross of Jesus for salvation, if they're willing to say, my life is not my own, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and to stand out as those who truly believe, the pressure's on. And it's not going to get easier. And so you have to stand fast and not buy into all these other things that might come in and and to give in to the ways of the world and to give in to feeling like you want to be a part of this sinful broken world, you will stand out. And certainly there's an exhortation here you've got to, got to, got to be prepared. Never forget. We're in spiritual warfare and it's going to come at our young people with vengeance. Never ever, if you're a Christian, be ashamed of the cross of Christ. Never be ashamed of Jesus. Never be ashamed. Never be ashamed. And stand fast. We live our lives under and for a reigning Christ. That's where our confidence comes in. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the Christ we serve. The very last verse in our section here is reminds us that this isn't it. This is not it. This is not the permanent situation, you might say. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Anything that comes at us in this life pales in comparison to what's in store for us. His eternal city. This is not it. Someone summarized it like this. Those who are outside of Christ, this is the best it will ever be. For those outside of Christ, this this world This fallen generation, this sometimes miserable life, this life which is misery without Christ, that's the best it's going to get. But for those in Christ, this life holds the worst it can ever get because what's in store is all glorious and indescribable the glories of heaven in the presence of Christ forever. Let's pray. Lord our God, perhaps we don't pause often enough to think about the willing sacrifice our Savior made. Treated with scorn, rejected, mocked, beaten, crucified, and dead. Outside the camp, an unholy ground for the sake of unholy sinners so that we might be sanctified is almost more than we can wrap our minds around. But we know that it's true. And we know that our Jesus who was crucified was buried but that death could not hold him he rose up from the dead and ascended into glory and is seated at the right hand right now ruling and reigning we praise you and we thank you and we come to you in his glorious name with the help of the spirit amen